Good morning. Let me go ahead and pray one more time as we get started this morning. Father God, we thank you. Uh, we thank you uh, for your spirit. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the work you are doing here at this ministry at Pacific Hope. We ask, Father, that you send your Holy Spirit now to come and teach us, to uh, grow us in a deeper understanding of who you are, and that it would impact every area of our life. In Christ's name, amen. So our beloved Pastor John and his wife Roxy, they are uh, away for their 24th anniversary, and so I have the joy of coming and filling in for him today. Um, one announcement I would just like to uh, highlight in the um, bulletin that you received, uh, we'd like to have our first ever appreciation dinner for those that serve in the infant and toddler and children's ministry, and um, if that's something that you are serving in, we would love to be able to show our appreciation to you that night. And also, what we're going to do is we're going to offer child care. So if you're a family who serves, uh, we'd like to uh, be able to serve you that way. Uh, we have some folks that have uh, decided to uh, give up their evening so that they could come and be with the children. So if you would like to attend but will need child care, if you could just uh, email me, Sarah, or Bobby, and just let us know by the 28th, that Monday before the Saturday, just so we can make sure that we have all, all the people in place for that. Um, with that, let's go ahead and read this morning's text. Turn to Psalm 14, please. Psalm 14. To the choir master of David... The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let me just pray one more time. Lord God, we commit this time to you again, and ask that you would teach us now. Amen. Have you not heard of the man-mad who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Has he emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained the earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are you we moving? Away from all suns. Are we not plunging continually? 
backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as though an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers, who was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned, has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe away this blood off of us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? There has never been a greater deed, and whoever is born after us for the sake of this deed, he will belong to a higher history than all history hitherto. Here the madman fell silent and looked again at his listeners, and they too were silent and stared at him in astonishment. At last he threw his lantern on the ground, and it broke into pieces and went out. I have come too early, he said to them. My time is not yet. This tremendous event is still on its way, still wandering. It has not yet reached the ears of men. Lightning and thunder require time. The light of the stars require time. Deeds, though done, still require time to be seen and heard. This deed is still more distant from them than most distant stars. And yet they have done it themselves. It has been related further that on the same day the madman forced his way into several churches and there struck up his requiem, Aeternum Deo, let out and called to account, he is said always to have replied nothing but, What after all are these churches now, if they are not the tombs and sepulchres of God? Now those words were written by the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who lived from 1844 to 1900, and um, he is the one who's famous for coining that term, God is dead. He even called himself the Antichrist and um, considered love the greatest danger, considered morality mankind's worst weakness. And Friedrich Nietzsche died insane in an asylum in Germany and was even writing letters to people and calling himself the crucified one. The Nazis adored Friedrich Nietzsche and sort of adopted him as their semi-official philosopher. And in graffiti uh, terms, in Austria, there's something that says, God is dead, sign Nietzsche. But right next to it is something that says, Nietzsche is dead, sign God. (laughs) But the idea is still alive. Anti-theism, atheism, agnosticism, it's still alive. Today we have Richard Dawkins, we have Christopher Hitchens, we have Sam Harris, we have Daniel Dennett. They've written books like The God Delusion, God is Not Great. Letter to a Christian nation, breaking the spell. They are brash, they are bold, they are intelligent, and sometimes arrogant. Their ideas are sweeping college campuses and the general populace at large. And they see it upon themselves to be the liberators of those who have been imprisoned by antiquated, superstitious ideas of a bygone era, like those of us that hold to Christ Jesus 
But like G.K. Chesterton once said, if there was no God, there would be no atheists. And the Bible speaks clearly about atheism, about this construct, about this philosophy, about this ideology. And this morning we're going to have a biblical assessment of what is said about it through the eyes of David as recorded in this psalm, Psalm 14. And the title, it's not my choice of words. The framework of a fool, it's, it's the word the Bible uses to describe these groups of people. And we're going to look at the fool's identity, the fool's creed, the fool's nature, the fool's fate, and finally, the fool's antonym. And before we do that, just a little background about this psalm. It's written by King David. He was the second king of the Israelites. He reigned from 1055 to 1015 BC. And as we know, David was a successful warrior and a very successful songwriter. 75 of the psalms that we have are attributed to him. His early years could be marked by the anointing by Samuel, his service to Saul, his defeat of Goliath, and then he was gathering a private army and starts gaining control over a large part of Judah. His middle years could be marked by his reign of Judah. Hebron was the capital, and David's influence is continuing to grow. And then, for 33 years, King David ruled over entire Israel. He was successful in battle. He extended the parameters of Israel's boundaries and made the religious and administrative center Jerusalem. And his influence and affluence continued to grow. And this being a psalm, you could categorize it as one that has a little bit of everything. Wisdom, lament, and prophecy. It's very similar to the Psalm 53. If you read Psalm 14 and 53, very minor differences. And it was probably written sometime between the uh, capture of the stronghold Jebus in 1 Chronicles 11 and 1 Chronicles 15 and 16, the transportation of the ark to Jerusalem. And we see here it was written for the choir master. David wrote this for the choir master. The person who directed the music of the temple or perhaps the entire liturgical service that would take place when Israel would gather. And one of the theological points that makes David unique is that in some ways, he prefigured the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You see oftentimes the words being used, the, the stem, the branch, the root of Jesse, the righteous branch, and it all points to the Messiah. And so with that, let us take a look at the text a little more closely this morning. The fool's identity, verse 1, the fool says in his heart there is no God. Now the identity would be the fool. Nabal is the Hebrew word that is used here. It's used wisely, uh, widely in wisdom literature. And what it conveys is the meaning of someone who's irrational towards God. Someone who is closed-minded. Someone who is breaking the social order or the moral order that is set before us. Someone who is behaving treacherously towards God. And it reflects character, not understanding. One commentary says, The psalmist has in his eye one blinded by worldliness or besotted with vice who can see no charm in virtue, no beauty in holiness, no loveliness, grandeur, attractiveness, and divine truth. And you see the Bible referring to fools on multiple occasions. Foolish people. You see it in Deuteronomy 32, verse 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? 
You see it being referring to uh, false prophets, being called foolish prophets. In Ezekiel 13.3, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their one spirit and have seen nothing. And the foolish person. You see Job speaking about his wife. Then his wife said to him in Job 2, 9 and 10, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So the identity of the fool is laid out before us. And we also have his creed, the fool's creed. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now when the Bible says he says in his heart, this isn't something that's verbally expressed necessarily. This is something that he is saying to himself. Something that he has conceived in his mind and has embraced as a conviction that he is holding on to. And when the Bible uses the word heart, it's always speaking, almost always speaking of the inner man. The mind, the heart, the character, the inclinations, the disposition, the loyalty, the concerns of an individual. They say the heart is the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner and immaterial nature. So this is someone who has resigned in their hearts to hold to a belief that there is no God. And when they say there is no God, they're saying there is no God who created the universe ex nihilo. They're saying there is no God who is omnipotent, benevolent, omniscient, and omnipresent. They're saying there is no God who is supernatural and acts supernaturally within the natural realm. He's saying there is no God who satisfies the thirsty, the longing, the hungry, and the poor. They're saying there is no God who gives personhood and dignity to every human on the face of this planet. They're saying there is no God who gives origin and the true foundation of what wisdom and knowledge truly is. They're saying there is no God who's embedded in absolute morality and conscience and the DNA of humanity. They say there is no God who has revealed himself in his world, i.e. general revelation, and through his word, special revelation. So thus the word is not seen as truth, as pure, as perfect, as precious, as powerful, as reliable. The word is not seen as a unified picture of the creator and judge, mankind, sin, salvation, and all doctrine. And they don't see the word as disclosing God's plan of salvation, where Jesus is the incarnation, where the Old Testament is the preparation, where the gospels are the manifestation, where the acts are the propagation, where the epistles are the explanation, and where revelation is the consummation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What I found was interesting as I was studying the use of the word God in this psalm, the word that's used is Elohim. And what's interesting is Elohim is the plural construct of El or Eloah. And I find that interesting because in no other Semitic language do you ever see the word God being used in a plural form like this. It is exclusive to the Old Testament. Not even in the Aramaic and other writings will you find something like this. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It's the basis for the Trinity. It's the basis for the Trinity. It's unity and plurality that we begin to see in Genesis 1. It made me think of Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Genesis 1-26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Imagine being Moses 
And being led by the Holy Spirit to pen that in the plural. Let us make man in our image. Isaiah 6, 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then the Lord said, Here I am, send me. The doctrine of the Trinity, you can begin tracing it in the first chapter of Genesis. And also, when we speak of the atheist here, what we're speaking of is not so much of a philosophical denial of the existence of God, as much it is a practical rejection. Deeming God uh, unimportant, a moral dismissal that God actually matters in a person's life. Because David here is writing about Israel and those that have turned idolatrous, those that have turned their backs on the covenant God. But you know, 80 to 90% of Americans will tell you that they believe in God. But when you consider the general population at large and you consider their view of the sanctity of life, family, marriage, sexuality, when you consider some of the denominations and what they have embraced as part of what they would now dub the new orthodoxy, when you consider some of the seminaries, what they are now teaching, you can begin to understand what David was writing about. People who acknowledged a God, but didn't worship God. So we have the identity, we have the creed, and now we get to the fool's nature. 1C, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So you know what David is conveying here to us by the power of the Holy Spirit? If a fool is someone who is practically rejecting God, the practical atheist, and their creed is there is no God, what gets them to that point is their nature. And what David is saying is that the nature of a fool is corrupt. There's a corruption there. That's what brings a person to this point. And when the word corrupt is being used here, it's referring to something that's spoiled, ruined, destroyed, It's something that God himself echoed when he looked over the land in Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw that the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. The same words being used in both places here. Now what's the the evidence that this practical atheist has a corrupt nature? Well, a tree is known by its fruit. And David here says they practice abominable deeds. It denotes things or practices that offends one's ritual or moral nature. And you can say there's three main categories. Pagan worship practices, deceit and insubordination with the covenant nation, and superficial worship of Yahweh. And when abominable is used, it's always pertaining, almost always in the Old Testament, pertaining to one's relationship with God. In 1 Kings 21, 26, it speaks of Ahab, and it says, He acted very abominably and going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. 
But now David goes one step further in this verse, and he now extends the playing field and basically says, there is no one who does good. That's the extent of the foolish nature. David is starting with the, with the Israelites, but really quickly you see here that he's expanding it to the entire human race. Because what's happening in Israel is simply reflective of what happens to anyone apart from the salvific work of God in their lives. So you could say that this corrupt nature, this foolish nature, comes standard on all makes and models. We're all born fools. It's a universal truth. And this description continues in verses 2 and 3. It says that the Lord looks down from heaven to see. And now we're speaking anthropomorphically. Looking down from heaven to see. We know God's omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. But yet we're trying to see words here that help us understand what's happening. And it says that God's looking for anyone who actually understands. Anyone who actually acts prudently or circumspectly. Anyone who has insight or is truly wise. And he goes on to say anyone who is actually seeking, who's actually inquiring, studying, investigating with an anticipated response of finding. And you see that we're called to do this. We're called to seek out God. Second Chronicles 15.2 If you seek Him, He will be found by you. First Chronicles 16.10 Glory in His name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. But at the end of the day, beloved, we know that the truest, purest seeker is God Himself. See, our bent is naturally to run from God. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, they started running and the human race has not stopped running from God. And God there has to ask, Adam, where are you? Where are you hiding? Man becomes afraid of God. Sin causes a division, a rift, in that vertical relationship that we're meant to have. And so our bent is to run from God as a people. But praise God, His bent is to run towards us. And Luke 19.10, the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus says, I've come to seek what is lost. And in Luke 15.4, Jesus tells us, who would not leave 99 sheep to go find the one that is lost? To leave the 99 that are healthy and to go find the one that is stranded, one who's in danger, one who's imperiled. What an assurance and confidence we have that that is the God of this universe. And now emphasis is being brought out in this psalm. It's saying all, the totality of humanity is guilty of this. They're guilty of being corrupt. They're guilty of turning their backs on God and acting as if though he didn't matter. Turned aside. Again, emphasis. Taking off the course. Going off the straight and narrow. And it says again, they've been corrupted. And again, it says, not even one. The totality of the human race, according to Scripture, apart from God's divine intervention in the life of a person, is corrupt. We become fools. We become those who live as if though there were no God. And if we want to get another look at this, turn with me to Romans chapter 3 for a moment. Romans chapter 3.
And uh, we'll read verses 10 to 18. And what you see here is, is that Paul lays out in this epistle in chapter 2, he drives home the point to the Israelites that you guys have a problem. And then chapter 3, he drives home the point the entire human race has a problem with sin. And this is what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now for every person, sin will look slightly differently. But at the end of the day, we have the same nature. We're not sinners because we do wrong things. We do wrong things because we have sinners. And I think a great example for us is always looking at small children. You do not need to train your child to lie. You don't need to train your child to dishonor you, to disrespect you, to be selfish. It's almost written in our very fabric of who we are. And so the universality of a corrupt nature is spelt out time and time again in the Bible. That's the fundamental problem of this entire planet. And now in verse 4, the psalmist says, Have they no knowledge? All these evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? What the Psalter is conveying here is these fools who have this corrupt nature. It's inexcusable. Because don't they have enough knowledge? Don't they have enough knowledge to see, to be able to understand and comprehend that there is a God who stands above this universe? And the context is the adulterous Israelites. But David took it global now. He took it global. There's a quote I came across by a commentator. It said, The wicked lack knowledge of God's truth. Although people may be brilliant in their chosen fields, they can still be morally insensitive and spiritually close to the issues that have eternal consequences. And if you think about it, general revelation, right? The creation before us that points us to the Creator. And that's something that everyone has access to. We have, this, uh, we have Netflix at home. Netflix is pretty cool. Bad business move to try to separate the two, right? The CDs and the actual online viewing. But um, one of the things that you can instantly view on Netflix is uh, the God of Wonders DVD. And so you have a group of scientists, physicists, biologists who... Uh, worship the God of the Bible. And they just begin to describe these different things as part of our planet and the intricacies and complexities that are woven into them. Everything from the dynamics of a snowflake to the fertilizer that's created every time lightning strikes and how the chemicals come together to, to, to make the soil fertile so that it can grow and sustain um, various forms of food and plant life. And if you stop and just think about the world that we live in, you think about the gravity that is holding us in place right now so that we could sit here. The sun, the, um, the insects, the intricacies of a small insect. 
I was looking at one that got caught in my net. And I'm watching him move. His, his, his legs literally as thin as the thinnest string that you could find. But yet he has a mind. He has a body. He has a digestive system. He has wings. He can fly. And you've probably heard. The scientists are now speculating that there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies apart from ours. Even honey. My wife ordered some organic, unpasteurized, unfiltered honey. Which, until you've had that, you haven't tasted honey. We're getting gypped in the store. I had a spoonful this last night. It's amazing, the robustness of the flavor. And I'm even thinking about all that takes place just for me to have that spoonful of honey. These worker bees that are so diligent and going and gathering pollen from all these different flowers. And then to put in an octagon-type-shaped structure that is very engineer, that is engineered so specifically to withhold the weight of the honey and the pollen and stuff that it contains. Think of the science of waves. The fact that the waves will start thousands of miles away before they ever hit a shore. Or the flight of a hummingbird that inspired those that created the helicopter as they watched the hummingbird go backwards, up, and just sort of stand still at any given point, but yet moving so quickly. But you know, you don't, even need to necessarily read Christian authors to get an understanding that our general creation is pointing us to the Creator. I have a series of quotes here, and for this sermon, I gathered a lot of data from, from um, sources I don't typically go to, but I thought, given the portion of Scripture we're in, it may be helpful for us. Listen to Robert Jastrow, a NASA scientist. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance, is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself up over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Richard Lewontin, a former Harvard professor of zoology and biology. Listen to what he says. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It's not the methods and the institutions of science that somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. William Dembski, PhD of mathematics, PhD of philosophy, MDiv at Princeton Seminary. Naturalistic mechanisms are incapable of generating the highly specific information-rich structure that pervade biology. Organisms display the hallmark of intelligently engineered high-tech systems, information storage and transfer, functioning codes, sorting and delivery systems, self-regulation and feeding loops, signal transduction circuitry, and everywhere 
complex arrangements of mutually interdependent and well-fitted parts that work in concert to perform a function. So I'm going to these sources here just to drive home the point. If we truly, honestly consider the creation before us, as Josh McDowell says and others, you need more faith to be an atheist. John Horgan, director of science writings for the Stevens Institute of Technology. Science, you might say, has discovered that our existence is infinitely improbable and hence a miracle. Hubert Yockey, a physicist and information theorist at UC Berkeley. Although at the beginning the paradigm was worth consideration, now the entire effort of the primeval soup paradigm is self-deception. Francis Crick, co-discoverer of the DNA, Nobel Prize winner, 1962. An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have to have had been satisfied to get it going. Sir Frederick Hoyle, a British astronomer. The chances that higher life forms arose by the evolutionary process is is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. (laughs) Now we laugh at that, but that's something to really consider. That's something really to consider that both the Christian and the atheist live by faith. And both the Christian and the atheist have presuppositions that they bring to the table. Both the Christian and the atheist have a certain set of convictions that will drive their conclusions. David Berlinski, Princeton-trained mathematician and molecular biologist, unable to say what evolution has accomplished, biologists now find themselves unable to say whether evolution has accomplished it. This leaves evolutionary theory in the doubly damned position of having compromised the concepts needed to make sense of life. Complexity, adaptation, design, while simultaneously conceding that the theory does little to explain them. And finally, Albert Einstein. I want to know how God created this world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Well, Einstein, being Jewish, he had the Torah. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here's the problem. The Bible also tells us that a true foundation for knowledge is found in a fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when the Bible is using the word fear here, it's a, it's a, it's a term of reference. It's a term of reverence. And the bottom line is we all fear something. We all fear something. And the question is if we don't have properly fear God as we should, as the one who created us, we'll fear other things. We'll start fearing the approval of men. We'll start fearing those that are around us. We'll start fearing spiders and flights and public speaking. We all fear something, but the Bible makes it very clear. To have true knowledge, you have to start with the fear of the Lord. And fear is contradictory to pride. Because to fear someone, you means you submit to them. You bow down to them. 
And that's what these atheists and agnostics won't do. They have no fear of God. They're irreverent. Richard Dawkins said in his God Delusion book, okay, maybe I can't disprove God. But he goes on to say, I can't disprove Thor, and I can't disprove the spaghetti monster either. I can. I can disprove the spaghetti monster, and I can disprove Thor. But you see these rash statements that these new atheists will make. But they're done out of a sense of pride, out of a sense of arrogance. In a debate that Doug Wilson had with Christopher Hitchens, who wrote the book, God is Not Great. In a debate, Doug Wilson says there are two fundamental tenets of true atheism. One, there is no God. Two, I hate him. And there's sort of this myth of being the final arbiter that you see when people will deny that there is a God who matters. Because in essence, what's being said is, the buck stops with me as a person. I am the one who gives you the final authority on what is reality, on what happens in outer space, on what happens in our minds, and how we should live our lives. Says who? Even the fact that certain animals have eyes that let them see things we can't see, why is it that our eyes are the ones who see things the way they really are? Just because we see it or don't see it, is that the final judgment on what actually exists around us? I remember uh, someone gave me uh, some things to help me see that Christianity is false. And he gave me this document, and in it it said, you know, we speak of intelligent design, but the human eye has been put in upside down. And I was thinking about that. Says who? Aren't we missing the bigger question here? The why? Why is there even a human eye to begin with? Why are there two eyes given to us? Why do we have the ability to perceive light, energy, the things that are around us, to make out the things that are before us? Not whether it's upside down or right side up. That is failing to miss the point here. And I think the trouble that we have as people is, is that we think if we don't understand causality, it must not occur. Determinum and causality doesn't have to be subject to our minds. Causality can stand on its own apart from us understanding how it works. Listen to what Doug Wilson says. And since we are, according to evolutionists, nothing more than souped up lemurs, let me raise again the question of trustworthiness of our thought process. Let us assume that evolution is not done with us. And we keep on advancing in the fog. When we have evolved for 10 million more years and our distant descendants look back on us, will they think our current cogitations and philosophies barely distinguishable from lemur thought? If they don't think that, then how is that evolution? And if they do think that, why should we trust anything that we are currently thinking? It's a good question. That's a good question. Why is our mind the one to determine what's rational, what's real, if we're just evolving? After a certain period of time, we might be proven to be complete idiots who totally missed the boat. But these atheists, these agnostics, they aren't driven by an intellectual issue. 
It's driven by a moral issue. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But look at verse 4. All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Evildoers, those who are wicked, those who intentionally are malicious and given a heart to evil. Who eat up my people as they eat bread. See, people will oftentimes say as a discredit to Christianity, oh, look at all the things that have been done historically in the name of Christ. But whenever that happens, that is always a departure from true Christianity. That is never in line with Christian worldview. It's always an abuse. But when it happens with atheists, it's not a stretch to say that's a natural product and outworking of their philosophy. Because if you're the final arbiter, if you are the person where the buck stops, you decide who's the superhuman. And many people have gone before us in trying to do that. And Christians have always been persecuted people. Here, as David is writing, he's speaking of the Israelites being overtaken by um, you know, Babylonian leaders and of the sort, taken into captivity by the Egyptians, those that would eat up the people and oppress them. And you look at history. 11 of the 12 disciples killed for their faith. The spread of the church, what was it marked by? Persecution. And the more they persecuted Christians, the more the church spread because guess what? I'm not sticking around. I got a bull. They're after me. Look at Rome. Nero, he burned Christians to light his parties. He got them, he put them on stakes, he doused them, and they became the nightlights that he would use for his orgies and everything else that he would do. Caligula, same thing. This is documented by Tacitus and other Roman historians. And let's speed it up a little bit. Think of Hitler, for example. You had the underground church, you know, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and those that opposed Hitler. And then you had Hitler's brand of Christianity called positive Christianity, he called it, where he denied everything supernatural. But many Christians died in those concentration camps because Hitler was intent on building the super race. He was the final judge on who got to live and who was valuable. And guess who went first? First, you got rid of the disabled. Then you got rid of the mentally disabled with Down syndrome. Then you started getting rid of the Jews. Then you started getting rid of anybody who would dare question what you were doing. All for the sake of a superhuman race. And to get a picture of, of what the psalmist is conveying here, these evildoers who eat up my people, you know, Stalin also had millions of people killed under his reign. And it's told that there was a story where Stalin called in and got a group of his henchmen to come into his office. And Stalin had a chicken in one arm. And looking at his henchmen, he started de-plucking the chicken right in front of them. And the chicken just in pain, screaming. And one by one, he just plucked every feather out of this chicken until it was completely nude. And then he put the chicken on the ground, completely stripped, and Stalin said, now you watch. And as he placed the chicken on the floor and walked away with some breadcrumbs in his hand, he said, incredibly, the fear-crazed chicken hobbled toward him and clung to the leg of his trousers. Stalin threw a handful of grain to the bird, and it began to follow him around the room. And he said he turned to his dumbfounded colleagues and said quietly, this is the way you rule people. Do you see how that chicken followed me for food even though I had caused it such torture? 
People are like that chicken, he said. If you inflict inordinate pain on them, they will follow you for food the rest of their lives. Look at North Korea today. How Christians are being persecuted in that country. Today, that philosophy that North Korea has embraced, Yuha, is no longer just an ideology. It's a full-fledged religion that worships Kim Il-sung as God and Kim Jong-il as the son of God. And the voice of the martyr says that today the largest human rights violations are clearly against Christians. 200 million Christians worldwide in at least 60 countries are denied fundamental human rights solely based because of their faith. And they're saying that 210,000 Christians will be martyred annually. And if you look at the course of history, several tens and tens of millions of Christians have been killed because of their faith. And 60% of those in the last century alone. So this is nothing new here. A philosophical agenda, worldview will push you in one way. And those who deny God, those who live as though he didn't matter, have a bent towards espousing something that establishes themselves as the final judge. And maybe you've heard of Yusef Nadharkani, the Iranian pastor. He's been in prison now for a couple of years in Iran. Why? Because he became a Christian. Because he was called to pastor God's people. He planted a few churches in Iran. Well, Iran didn't like that. And Iran and Islam may be the fastest growing religion, but it's important to note it's the fastest forced religion. Because Yusuf has no opportunity to continue in his Christian faith unless he renounces his Christian faith. And what's interesting about Yusuf, this has gotten a lot of media attention around the world to the point where the Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, is now wondering, what do I do with Yusuf? The ball's in his court. If we kill him, like our Sharia says we should, it's going to cause major problems. But if we let him live... That's going to cause major problems for our Sharia, the law that we live by. So they're in a real quandary. He's been away from his two sons for two years now. He's in prison. He won't recant. They've tried to um, bolster all these different accusations on him, that he's raped women, that he's, that he's robbed money, that he's done this. But nothing sticks. And as I thought of it, it reminded me of those mock trials Jesus had before he was crucified. One witness would say this, another witness would say that, but nothing would stick. It's all, it's all a mockery. The reason they want him killed is because he lives for Christ. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that a wrong understanding of God will invariably lead to a wrong understanding of life and dignity and will start taking someone down the road of death. 50 million legal abortions in this country since 1973. Planned Parenthood was started by an avowed atheist, Margaret Sanger. And there's a story of her once when she was young. She dared God. She ran out of the house in a lightning storm and started cursing God and saying, God, if you're there, kill me. Strike me dead now. And when nothing had happened after several minutes, she went back into her home and told her family, see, there's no God that exists. You think of euthanasia, assisted suicide. Those all aren't birthed in a Christian worldview. And it says, these people don't call upon the Lord. They don't pray to God. They don't worship God. 
They revile it. They mock it. But as I said, an atheist at its root is not an atheist because of an intellectual issue. At the end of the day, a person who lives as if though God didn't matter is doing so by choice, and it's a moral choice. It's a moral choice. Look with me at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. I'll start in verse 19. Uh, Actually, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress it. It's like that proverbial beach ball in a pool, and you're doing all you can to keep it underwater. But it pops up here, so you jump on it. It pops up here, so you jump on it again. And you try to suppress the truth that there is a moral absolute given to us by a moral absolute lawgiver. 19, general revelation. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing, committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil covetousness, and malice. They are all full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We know. When the lights are out, the doors are closed, we know that there's a moral absolute that we will be held accountable to. We do. We know, and we're going to see that here shortly, a little bit more in detail. But the point I want to drive home this, when you read Hitchens, when you read Dawkins, when you read Dennett, this is not an intellectual issue. I can find you scientists that can go toe-to-toe with each of them, educated as well as them, if not better. Respected in their respective communities as much as them, if not better. But some land on the side of Christ. Others reject him. Francis Collin, he's head of the Genome Project. He's considered the greatest scientist of our time. Listen to what he said. 
I had started this journey of intellectual exploration to confirm my atheism. That now lay in ruins as the argument from the moral law forced me to admit the plausibility of the God hypothesis. Agnosticism, which had seemed like a safe second-place haven, now loomed like the great cop-out that it often is. Faith in God now seemed more rational than disbelief. After 28 years as a believer, the moral law still stands out for me as the strongest signpost to God. More than that, it points to a God who cares about human beings and a God who is infinitely good and holy. This man knows his science. He knows his science. Aldous Huxley, I don't know if you've heard of him. They call him Darwin's bulldog back in the day. Dawkins is Darwin's Rottweiler. Um, Huxley was Darwin's bulldog. And, and, And Huxley, at least he's an honest man. And he really discloses the moral thrust behind his atheism. Listen, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, Aldous Huxley says, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. You deny the creator, you deny a moral law, you do as you please. And he went and pursued his erotic passions. But atheists don't exist due to a lack of information, but rather because of a lack of desire to submit to the moral law that is before us. Now what's the fool's fate? Look at verse 5. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of of the righteous Great terror, sudden panic, overcoming a person, overwhelming a person. You know, it sort of happens. You, you keep trying to get that beach ball to stay underwater, and it keeps popping up. After a while, you sort of come to terms that there's a problem here, and it begins to cause fear in you. Think of Daniel chapter 4 in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar going insane for a period of seven years as he tried to suppress the God of the Bible. Nero, insanity. Caligula, insanity. As I already said, Nietzsche, the insane asylum, calling himself the crucified one. And Stalin, who we read about, he was a seminary student at one point in Russia. And at some point he came to a break, denied any belief in God whatsoever. Lenin liked what he saw in Stalin, so he changed his name to Stalin, which means steel. Put him in power. And Stalin ruled for 30 plus years with an iron fist sending millions to the Siberian work camps. But his daughter, Svetlana, had a conversation with Malcolm Muggridge, and this is what she says about the final hours of Joseph Stalin. As Stalin lay dying, plagued with terrifying hallucinations, he suddenly sat halfway up in bed, clenched his fist towards the heaven once more, then fell back on his pillow and was dead. Who is he clutching his fist at? There is no God. Now Stalin adopted Nietzschean philosophy and used that as a basis to develop his own worldview. Spurgeon, 
these very loud-mouthed, iron-handed, proud-hearted Nimrods and Herods, those heady, high-minded sinners, a panic terror seized them. They feared a fear, as the Hebrew puts it. An undefinable, horrible, mysterious dread kept crept over them. The most hardened of men must have their periods when conscience cast them into a cold sweat of alarm. As cowards are cruel, so all cruel men are at heart cowards. The ghost of past sin is a terrible specter to haunt any man. And though unbelievers may boast as loudly as they will, a sound in the ears will make them ill at ease. And that's just a temporal terror. What about the final judgment? The one that we read about in Matthew 13. I won't read the whole thing, but Jesus says, everybody, when they die, will stand before God. And I had this thought. Have you ever wondered how it doesn't matter who has a near-death experience? They always talk about seeing a bright light. And I want to do a little research on this, but I got to thinking. Bright light, doesn't matter who you are. And uh, I, was, I was even watching a thing on VH1, The History of Gangster Rap. And one of the guys had a near-death experience, and he was saying how he saw the bright light, you know? It was really interesting, by the way. Um, it, no, I'm, I'm, I'm genuine about that. It really was. But they keep saying this bright light. I got to thinking, well, what happens when we die? What do we know from Bible what happens when we die? We come to the inapproachable light, do we not? And we stand before God. You don't go instantly to heaven or hell. You go before the great judge himself who asks you, what did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? So then it clicked to me. Maybe that's what's happening. These people are approaching that light. God has mercy on them, brings them back into the realm of the living. And his mercy doing as he pleases. But we're all going to stand before God one day. And the question will be asked to us, what did you do with Jesus Christ? And like the bumper sticker says, what you do with Jesus Christ determines where you spend eternity. But what's the fool's antonym? What's the fool's opposite? Look at verse 5. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. God is with the righteous. God is with the righteous. He is with those who recognize that there is a moral lawgiver to whom we are answerable to, and our life reflects that in reverence and worship. But as the fool would shame the plans of the poor, as they would go after and destroy them, God is with the righteous. And when we use the term poor, what's being conveyed here? It's got nothing to do monetarily. It's the humble, the meek, the moral and spiritual condition of the godly, indicative of a right relationship with God. That's what is being used here. So the opposite of a fool is a poor a poor man, a poor woman. So when Joel Osteen says your best life now, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about one who understands that affliction is going to come to the Christian, but rejoice for the God is with the righteous. He is with the poor and he will give you what you need to sustain you in that time and trial. 
And in Jesus, Zechariah 9.9, I won't read it, but there you, you see that term poor being used. That Jesus was poor or humble and mounted on a donkey, as Zechariah prophesied. And Matthew 5.3, as we've been going through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. MacArthur says, this is simply the opposite of self-sufficiency. This speaks of the deep humility of recognizing one's utter spiritual bankruptcy apart from God. It describes those who are actually conscious of their own lostness and hopelessness apart from divine grace. That's the opposite of a fool. It's realizing you absolutely can do nothing apart from Christ. And there's a sad lie in our world of independence. You think about it, you're born into this world completely helpless. Everything has to be done for you. You have to be fed, cleansed, changed, provided for, shelter over your home. And then we somehow embrace this idea that i got to be a self-made man. 18, I'm heading out of the door. And we, and, we, and we stir up people to be independent, stand on their own two feet, only to tell them when they come to Christ, you've got to go back and be totally dependent now. You've got to be totally dependent on Jesus Christ. You've got to be totally dependent on Christ to live a life that honors and pleases Him. To be able to walk in a manner that garners His approval. And who knew that more than Paul? Paul was killing Christians. Paul was loving it. He thought he was religiously righteous. Not a blemish on him. Then he had a face-in-face encounter with Christ. Saul, why are you killing my people? Converted on the spot. Whipped 40 times minus one, five times. Stoned to death, shipwrecked. You know all that happened to him. And listen to what he says in Acts 20, 18 and 19. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And he humbled himself, finding joy in the midst of prison. He wrote four epistles from prison. Philippians, the, 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 if, you, if you call that epistle, by, or described it by one word, it would be joy. And he wrote it from prison. God became a son so that we might become sons of God. We have to become poor. Not independent, dependent. And when we do that, the Lord is our refuge. The Lord becomes a safe harbor for us. He is who we turn to. Psalm 2.12, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 5.12, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. As I thought about this verse, I thought of Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow has 297 passing yards in four games. Tim Tebow looks statistically horrible. On paper, he doesn't measure up to a college quarterback, let alone an NFL quarterback. But Tim Tebow's 4-1 as a starter in the NFL. Tim Tebow's beating teams the Chargers can't beat. Tim Tebow, (laughs) Tim Tebow, you know those Chuck Norris jokes about Tim Tebow? I mean, about Chuck Norris, you know? Now they're doing it. There's a whole website devoted to this. Listen to this. You know how they say that certain players have the it factor? I read, it has the Tebow factor. The NFL renamed the two-minute warning Tebow time. When Tebow spikes the ball, he strikes oil. 
Chuck Norris doesn't wear a watch because it's always Tebow time. <laughs> Tebow doesn't cheat death. He beats it fair and square. And there's been no one who's been more polarizing in the NFL since I've been a fan. People don't know what to do with this guy. I mean, I've listened to commentators and announcers lambast him as a quarterback, mocking the highlights. Oh, look how he puts a flutter on the ball, how it wobbles, just so it could stay away from the defender. I heard one commentator say, you know what Tim Tebow needs to do if he wants to be a quarterback in the NFL? He needs to take the offseason and learn how to throw right-handed. And all this stuff going on, right? It's spiritual. There's a spiritual dimension to this. He is very clear, very articulate about his Christian faith. I watched him in his post-game interview against the Jets after he stunned them. Rex Ryan shaking his head. What just happened, right? And he always says, first and foremost, I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen to what he said in an interview. This guy was interviewing him saying, what do you do with all these naysayers that keep attacking you, that keep going after you? He says, I don't got time for that. He says, in this life, my Christian faith is number one. My family is number two, and football will always be a distant number three. As long as the first two are good, Tebow says, then football will take care of itself because at the end of the day, it's a game. And he goes on to say, I can't focus on the naysayers, he said, because they will always be there, and they have always been there, and I am just thankful I don't have to live the roller coaster life that everybody else watching me lives because I can stay grounded in my faith. Who's his refuge? Who's his refuge? And you know people would love to see that guy go down. You know there's just somebody hoping he falls in his uh, testimony. You know, that maybe he, he, he has an illicit relationship or something just to shut this guy up. But he understands. And that's just football. That's a game. But how about this Yusuf pastor who's in Iran? Not recanting, not recanting, in prison, going up to the highest official in Iran. I will stand firm in my faith in God. He is my refuge. And that's what he becomes for you and me, beloved. He's our refuge. No matter the trial. He's the refuge because you understand that he's sovereign. He's in control. He's going to finish the good work he started in each of us. And as it ends here, the hope of the psalmist, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Initially, when this term was used in the Old Testament, it had a sense of being... Um, help for in the time of trouble and deliverance. Not taken out of it, but just help in the midst of it. And so the whole concept of salvation is still being unfolded in the Old Testament. So here the psalmist is using it more of like a literal help. Help me in the midst of my trials. I got the Babylonians. I got the Egyptians. They're after me. Help me. But the whole concept of salvation is there. And that's our hope. No matter what we go through, no matter what we encounter, no matter the trials and difficulties that we have, that is our hope. We have hope. One person said this, God's ability to give salvation provides the basis for man to worship him. Only a God who can save is worthy of worship. 
therefore a frequent polemic against idolatry is to challenge the other gods to bring deliverance to their oppressed followers. Their failure to respond demonstrates that those gods are vain and leads to the confession that besides Yahweh, there is no Savior. Final considerations as we close up. Remember, atheists, agnostics, Christians, we all have faith. We all live by faith. Because to be a true atheist, you would have to comb the entire universe, every aspect of it, and know conclusively that there is no God. And furthermore, know that God must subject himself to your thinking, to your vision, to your comprehensive ability to comprehend. And I would say this, for the person who lives, there is no God. He has a God, and his name is materialism. He has a religion. The religion is science. He has prophets. They go by the name of Darwin, Dawkins, Hitchens, Harrison, Dennett. He has a holy book comprised of epistles written by these people by the names of God delusion, letter to a Christian nation, under the spell, and God is not great. They have a morality. It's social construct. It's pragmatism. It's utilitarianism. And eternity, six feet under. But we need to stand firm. We need to stand firm. We need to make sure that we don't get intimidated by these atheists, by these new atheists. We need to make sure that we don't get uncomfortable and feel like we have to almost like back away because we're the Christians and we live by faith while they live by reason. We need to be careful about that because that's a lie, that's a trap, that's a stacked deck that you're walking into. At the end of the day, that atheist has to go to bed with presuppositions and conclusions that ultimately cannot be quantifiable, just like you and me. There's an element of faith. When we were uh, in seminary, there was this bakery called Porto's. Cuban bakery had been there 50 years. We loved that place. We would go there almost every weekend. I mean, the prices were unbeatable. The food was delicious. And they had this orange juice machine, right? Some Italian name on it. And you go and like a cup of OJ is like three bucks. But all you're getting is orange juice. I mean, you see them just throwing these Valencia oranges in there. It crushes it. Juice comes out in your cup. Done. And you taste that. You talk about sweet nectar from heaven. I wonder what orange juice is going to taste like after Christ comes back. Because this thing tasted so good, right? And then I'm thinking, okay, you got Porto's on one end with their orange juice. Then you could probably go to Trader Joe's and get their flash pasteurized orange juice. That's pretty good, but it's lost a little something. Then I can go to Costco and get their organic orange juice. It's been normally pasteurized. It's lost something. Then I can go to Tropicana in the store it's like, you know, it starts losing the robustness. Then I can go concentrate. Then I can go Tampico. <laughs> and I think we need to be careful because Tampico is not orange juice. <laughs> and there's a point behind this. But what I'm trying to say is this. You start with the pure, precious milk of the word. And you cling to it. But if you start making accommodations, if you start saying, well, maybe the Bible isn't inerrant. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is theistic evolution. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it's only the words in red that we should obey. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe the, the, the view of women in the Bible and society should match. And you start making these concessions. 
You may have started out with Porto's, but you may end up with Tampico, but you may not even know it. And at some point, that's no longer orange juice. And the more concessions and accommodations you make, you may no longer have Christianity as your faith. And you may not even be aware of it. You may have another faith altogether, a.k.a. Sunny Delight, all those orange aids. <laughs> right? And so we need to remember that. We don't have to understand everything. We may not have exhaustive knowledge, but we have, we have enough knowledge. We have sufficient knowledge. It's been tested over centuries. It's been adhered to by scientists, by shoemakers, by philosophers, by athletes. We need to be careful. Um, there's this brother that I pray with almost on a weekly basis. And he, and he just shared with me the step of obedience that he took. And I had never heard of somebody taking that step of obedience based on an interpretation of Scripture. But I agreed with his interpretation of Scripture. I just couldn't believe that he took this step of obedience. But you know what the thing he told me was? He said, Anthony, you know, it's not like when we obey Jesus completely, completely surrender ourselves to him, that he just leaves us in the gutter. He graces you. He lavishes you. He blesses you for your obedience. And I think sometimes we can be in a position where we're accommodating, where we've made concessions, perhaps where we've even sort of normalized some patterns of sin in our lives. And we're fearful that if we actually forsake it, we'll be left in the gutter, some proverbial gutter. But Christ is true to his word. He'll never leave you in the gutter. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And so it is with us. Maybe you don't have all the answers, but do not forsake Christ. Relish him. Cherish him. The pure milk of the word. And when you preach, when you evangelize, make sure you give the whole gospel. The whole gospel. Apologetics, it helps a little bit. It might clear the bushes to help someone have a clear view of Christ. But at the end of the day, you're not going to win someone to Christ by giving them all these quotes I gave you. Because it's not an intellectual issue, it's a moral issue. And remember, Christianity is not a religion. And I would suggest that Christianity is not a relationship. Demons have a relationship with Jesus. They had a very vivid relationship with Jesus in the gospel accounts. The question is, what's the nature of your relationship with Jesus? I would say rather that Christianity is about reality. And the only thing you and me have to decide is whether we're going to play by the game, play by the rules of the game. We can't define reality like we want to. You can't go in the NFL and now decide you're going to have a three-point point after. You can't decide that you get to run through the first rows of the bleachers and come back onto the field. All you can decide is whether I'm going to play by the rules or not. And that's what we do. Reality's already been defined. It's already been established. We simply decide whether we're going to play by the rules. And know that God will not forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that you are God and we are not. We thank you, Lord, that you stand above us as high as the heavens are. So far higher are your thoughts and your ways. 
And we confess, Father, that we grow weak at times. We're confused at times. But we praise you that your word is true, that your promises are true, and that they have been substantiated for two millennia. I ask, Lord, that you would help us to be bold in our faith, to be courageous in our faith, to know that whatever may come our way, your grace is sufficient for your grace and your power are made perfect in weakness. We praise you and we thank you, Father. May your word just press deeply in upon our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.